What's up? And welcome to another episode of Black in the Maritimes. I'm Fidel. I'm Hillary. I'm Clinton. And I'm Alon. And today we have a special guest. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Mary Louise McCarthy. She is a woman born and raised in Fredericton, graduated from UNB of a Master's of Education and Critical Studies program. Uh, she became one of the first female presidents of the NB Black History Society from 2012 to 2016. Uh, has been featured in magazines like Shadowline of one of the 33 Black women in Canada highlighted for their work on systemic racism and anti-Black racism. Uh, right now she is retired, but she's still an advocate uh, of, of segregated life uh, and experiences of Black people in uh, Canada. So welcome and thank you for being a guest. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So uh, let's go back because we were talking about a little bit. You, you grew up in Woodstock, is that correct? Yeah. Born and raised yes. in Woodstock, New Brunswick. Yes. I'm, um, as as the intro says, my um my father's uh, fourth great grandmother, my fifth great grandmother escaped the plantation in Virginia and came into Nova Scotia in 1783. She's listed in the Book of Negroes, the Carleton Papers. Mm -hmm. And um, and she uh, was um, indentured or enslaved with one of the they call them the first uh, the first families of New Brunswick. So a colonial father, quote unquote, not my father, but colonial man brought her back from Nova Scotia to New Brunswick when New Brunswick was created in 1784. And I'm a descendant of that woman named Sabina, a proud descendant. Oh, wow. So uh, for those of you who don't know the Book of Negroes, it, it is on Netflix. There's a movie about it and there's a book. It's pretty interesting. And it talks about uh, the, you know, slavery and black settlers in Canada. Uh, which is very part of a history of Canada. So you are one, you're, you could say you're a black uh, New Brunswicker, one of the first ones and your family is one of the first ones. So that is just by itself, it's, it's amazing to have you here because you, you, you have it deep and rooted. So how was it growing up in Woodstock, New Brunswick as a, like, and as generations of black people in New Brunswick? Terrible. Um, Woodstock is a very, it's a small town of about 5,000 people and about 20 churches. Um, and we mm. stood out, there was maybe four or five black families and extreme, extreme racism. I, I was in trouble all the time because I stood up for myself against, in one time, even <laughs> we had teachers escaping uh, the uh, Vietnam War draft dodgers. So they were coming in to teach in Canada. So they were teaching in Woodstock. And um, where I grew up and this one guy, he and I bat batted heads and he I ended up walking out of his classroom and being sent to the principal's office because he told the, the uh, principal of the school that I had no respect for him. And I'm like 14 years old. And I said, I don't give respect until I receive respect. Like where I got that courage. <laughs> so the principal saying, Mary, I don't want to have to call your mother. Calm down. You know, so I got to spend the rest of his class in the library because he and I did not did not connect. But um, Woodstock is an old colonial town and um, very to me, very much racism. I have memories. I have trauma of my father being thrown on the lawn, being beat up uh, from a community legion. Um, I have another trauma. I wrote a story. I'm a writer and a poet, and I wrote a story. And in the book, Black Writers Matter, it was published in 2019. I have a chapter about community. And in that story, I talk about my brother who was beat up in Maine. We share a land border with the state of Maine, which you know. And my brother was at a bar in Maine and he was lured outside and beat with like five guys with steel toe boots. To this day, my brother walks with a limp. Oh, wow. Memories of the police coming from the U.S. intimidating my parents saying, well, Mr. Mrs. McCarthy, do you have money? You're going to be able to have, you know, well, we're going to just let this go. You're not pressing charges, are you? And you know, we were told not to discuss this outside of the home. My poor brother was in traction for like almost a year, like just terrible, terrible, terrible racism. Oh, my God. And, and it's kind of odd to hear that from somebody that lived it in New Brunswick for generations, uh, which is something that, again, all none, none of us in this podcast can say because we haven't lived. Uh, I think Hillary is the one that has lived the most in New Brunswick. Uh, but 
you know, when you have a black family suffering for that for how long? And now with with all of that happening, did did the thought of moving ever came across or, or leaving because of all of that? Or was that never an option? For me personally, yes. I couldn't get out of uh, I couldn't get out of Woodstock fast enough. And and I had one teacher who obviously thought I was bright and wanted me to go to academic, the academic stream to go to university. And I just knew in my mind I wanted to get out of Dodge. And so I took business and typing and all that. And I just wanted to exit. It's ironic that as I began my work life, I went back and started getting academic education because I knew I knew what I wanted <laughs> and I knew I wasn't going to get it as someone's secretary. So I was very motivated to do I did all of my degrees part time. I, in fact, have two master's degrees, a bachelor's from York University, two master's from UMB. And I just finished my Ph.D. from the University of Toronto. I defended in December. Oh, well, congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Now, what, like, let's talk about, like, what year are we talking about that you were in, in your school days? What years are we talking about? Well, I graduated in 73. So these, my school, my high school years would have been probably 60, um, like middle school would have been probably 67 to, to 70. And um, I would have been 12. I was born in 55. And um, high school, I graduated in 73. So would have been 70 to 73. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. So a lot of people don't know uh, that in Canada, our Civil Rights Act was only mentioned in 1977, which was the Human Rights Act. So uh, before that, uh, people of color didn't have any type of rights. Uh, and in the 60s was, uh, you know, things like you couldn't go to a movie theater uh, within places, which uh, we have Viola Desmond, which that's what happened to her. Uh, that was in the late 50s, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, now, as a minority in New Brunswick, were you able to communicate with other minorities like in Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or, or, or was that also not feasible at those in those well, times? Absolutely, we did. Like, um, I come from a very rich family. My mom was one of um, 13 children. She was the eldest of 13 and I'm one of nine. So uh, my mother's family, there was a lot of cross marriage with Nova Scotia. And I don't know if you're aware, but there was a recruitment during World War II of Black teachers in New Brunswick to teach in the segregated areas in Nova Scotia. And my mother was one of those teachers. She taught in North Preston. And in fact, my mother and father are both from, both from New Brunswick. My mom was from just outside Woodstock. My dad was from Fredericton and they met at a picnic. My dad was just home from the war. He was wounded. He was in the veterans hospital in Halifax. And there was a picnic someplace in Dartmouth where all the blacks got together and my parents got together and they met in um, Dartmouth and came back to New Brunswick and had nine little babies. So I mean, because we lived on the border, like right in the border of Maine, we had many, there was quite an influx of of uh, our families, the Black community going into Maine, going into Bangor, as well as going into Nova Scotia, Halifax, Dartmouth, a lot of marriages. In fact, the military base that was in Loring Air Force Base, a lot of the young Black soldiers used to come into Canada to meet the Black girls. And my aunt married a man from Virginia who was coming to uh, a dance. And in, in, uh, I think he was on his way to St. John, the story goes. He was on his way to St. John. And he stopped in Woodstock with his buddies for gas. And my one of my uncles was working at the garage and they started talking. And he said, well, don't bother with St. John tonight. Come on back to my grandmother's. We're going to have beans and homemade brown bread. And he met my gra my, my younger, my mom's younger sister. And they were married in the early 60s. And they've been married like 50 years. They live in El Paso, Texas now. So. That is such an interesting piece of information to uncover yeah. because you're now the second guest we've had on the show that has talked about this little chunk of New Brunswick history that I don't think a lot of people know knew about. <laughs> the American boys coming up from America to uh, meet and hit on the girls here in, in, in the towns on the border. You're, um, Paris Siddharth told us that same story only months ago. They called them the flyboys. And I think CBC did a little podcast or a little interview on it. Those oh, boys did they? Were called the flyboys. And fly even the boys. guys in St. John hated them because 
the girls like were so attracted to them and, and relationships ended and began with these fly boys. Oh, it's an American. Listen, it's an American thing. It is what oh, it is. Hush. <laughs> listen, I can attest to it is what it is. All right? oh, no, Not no to spill wrong. anyone's details, but I believe that Mary Louise is married to an American. So I think she is a convert as well. Yeah, Everyone I'm just ever, saying it's just it is what it is. Right? That, that's, that, that, that makes perfect sense to me. It's the allure of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And my uncle told my aunt he'd take her across the world, and he absolutely did. They lived in Germany. They they lived all over the U.S., but um, they lived mostly in Germany. And where else were they in Europe? Maybe France or wherever there was a naval base. But they're retired now. And, and another another quick fact about that, and I think that has to do uh, with the charm of the military man. In those days, uh, since black people didn't have work, military was work. That's where yeah. the black people could actually get work. So if a black woman saw a guy come in the military, she saw that he probably had enough money to get home yes. or and get stuff. So, so that was part of the charm as well, right? So the Americans were the first ones to start sending black people to war. So, and the only way that they did that was by paying them. That was the way that they 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 recruited them. Right. So that is definitely one of the, the one of the charms. Not only Such that, a cute story though. Yeah, it, it, it is <laughs> very cute. My father was part of that when he joined World War II. He was only 16 and he lied to get into the military. <laughs> and uh, it was because of the stable income and and uh, you know, and to travel to see a bit of the world. So yeah. So talk about that. Talk about the the culture of the black New Brunswickers, since you are one of the people that can actually talk about that, that has a rich history. What do you think that in New Brunswick, they don't teach us that. They don't teach anything uh, about black history of New Brunswick. They don't even teach a lot about black history in Canada. Uh, so what is it that, uh, you know, what is the history of black people in New Brunswick, if you can sum it up? Um well, I really can't sum it up, but I can say that there is a proud, uh, determined history. Um, I know that um, one of my grandfathers, I, I speak of my family because of the extension that I have to to the formation of the province, but there was a church built in uh, 1837, and it's still standing today. It's St. Peter's Church in Fredericton, and my um, fourth great-grandfather was the master carpenter. And the Black community was so uh, dedicated to that church being originally built by Black laborers and a Black uh, specialist, a carpenter, that they put in, it's very unique, the, the church windows, the stained glass windows. One stained glass window has Black men working. Little laugh, frozen, everything. So they had it customized, built uh, to give back to the church and to cement the history of the Black population in, um, in New Brunswick. And, and I guess, you know, um, Fidel, when I think about um, the Black culture, we grew up with um, parents that lived with extreme in-your-face racism. So we were raised to cross the street, turn, turn your cheek, um, you're better than that. And, and, and I rejected all of that because I felt I was as good as the next person. So my mother and I met, we, we clashed a lot on that. But um, there is a camaraderie and a, and a connection with the Black community, especially in the Fredericton area. We have a couple annual Black picnics. I don't know if you know that. They have uh, one in Elm Hill, which is an old community uh, back to the 1700s. Elm Hill, which is just outside of Lower Gagetown. Uh, there's a Black picnic. Uh, and this is always on that August 1st weekend. Uh, there's a Black picnic at Willowstock Park which is just outside Fredericton. Um, and I believe St. John has their own black picnic. I haven't made it there yet, but maybe with, when the pandemic is, is um, relaxing some of their protocols, I'll be able to go this year. So, um, you know, I give all my respect to my ancestors. I feel like the strength and the knowledge and the gifts that I have, they gave to me. And I, I, I celebrate them every day. I could not have gotten to where I am without their strength. Now, I don't know if you recall that, or you probably, I don't know if it was on my bio, but when I took a year off work to start my PhD, which was in 2011, 2010, 2011, I was racially profiled at a shopper's drug mart on Bloor Street. And I fought that with every fiber in me. 
and and I won my case four and a half years later. But I couldn't have done that without the strength of, you know, they say it takes a community to raise a child and it takes a community to to support you. And I had the strength of of my brothers and sisters and my extended family. So and it, indeed, and that's one one thing that we we wanna emphasize in in things like this podcast is that community is what builds and makes change. And, you know, that's, that's pretty much when you have a group of people that actually are ready to make change and they're ready to, to make sure that they're behind those people to make changes that that's what makes it. And it doesn't get uh, emphasized in the in Atlantic Canada. Like yeah. we, we only get uh, a lot of the, you know, segregation, racism and stuff, but they don't get the community aspect of places like North Preston and uh, places like Franklin or the Loyalists in, in St. John. So we definitely want to, we want to empathize that. So going back to your life, uh, once you got away from Woodstock, that you were like, finally, where, where did you land? I landed in Halifax oh. for years. Yes. And I how had, was, how was that? What was okay. It was good. Um, because I had an extended family there. I had aunts and uncles who were married to guys from North Preston, East Preston. So I spent every weekend in the Prestons. Um, and uh, I, I, I was in Halifax about a year, year and a half. And then I eventually went to Toronto and I stayed in Toronto. And my son was born there from probably the late, maybe 77, 78, until I came back in 91 with a four-year-old son. Oh wow! So, so you experienced when, uh, for example, when Lincoln Alexander got was the governor general, and he was the, yeah. the parliament of Hamilton. So, and you, well, a, a lot of things happened on, in in those times. Nelson Mandela was released too. Exactly, Nelson Mandela was, I was released. at York University, and um, yeah, I mean, um, I always say, and I said this to someone else, that I was born in Woodstock, but I grew up in Toronto. You know, because my family and and network was extremely multifaceted. You know, I had my closest girlfriend was from Guyana. She now lives in Arizona, and um, she's Guyanese. And uh, yeah, I just um, I feel like I I woke up when I uh, literally when I came to Toronto, and I had extreme racism there too because here I am. Uh, 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 a brown girl with the name McCarthy. And when you talk to me on the phone, I sound Canadian, right? And I had doors closed when I showed up for interviews because, oh, oh, you're, you're Mary McCarthy. Oh, oh, well, the job's, the, that job's done. But we do have positions available in, uh, in maintenance and in, in, in dietary and in, like this happened to me several times. So I was kind of, you know, racially typecast by my voice, but when I showed up, I was not what they expected. Oh wow! And and again, that story is—it's the story of the Black Canadian in in those times, and and it makes you think. What do you think that people don't get about racism in Canada? Since you you are, um, I can't say that you you one of the main boys, but you have experiences and you have generations of experiences. Uh, compared to when they compare racism to the to the U.S., what do you think people don't get about the racism here in Canada? Well, it depends on what side you're inquiring, but I think that the the uh, you know the oppressors or the colonial powers or Europeans or you know the white people they are um, naive and they don't care and they're ignorant. Like I just think that difference equals ignorance, and they're not accepting of anyone who could be on the same level as them. You know, the old boys club, you know, shaking your pennies in your pocket and going off to the bar. It's just such, um, you know, male dominant patriarchal bullshit, you know, like my biggest joy is being in a room with an old fashioned white man so I can chew him to bits. It's terrible to say that, but I am not intimidated. <laughs> so, you know. Dominic Cardi, um, Blank Higgs, <laughs> anybody. Oh. I'm doing an interview on a Monday morning, uh, CBC here in Fredericton, and I'm calling them all out because of a project I've been working on. So uh, I said to my husband, you may have to meet me at the border. I might be escorted out of the province because um, because of an a, of a unresolved issue, which is a, a graveyard that was uh, uh, segregated and... Um, it was covered up with water with the Maxquack Dam. And 
the black, the white graves were moved and the black graves were left there. And um, I've been asking for a public apology for years. And um, I built my dissertation kind of around six graveyards, but this particular graveyard, I have a great grandfather that's underneath the water and I'm not letting it go. And in fact, I got an email about two weeks ago from one of Minister Holland's executives saying they're working on a, an apology letter. And I snapped back. I said, an apology letter is wonderful, but that's not what we've discussed. I want a public apology with media. And I will not rest until I get that because they desecrated my ancestors' graves, moved the white graves, and left the black graves. Oh, wow. And So I'll be causing some fluff here next week. <laughs> well, and again, and, and that, that needs to be done. Uh, you know, you, you, have to, you, you have to kind of fight, fight uh fight the fight that nobody's fighting, right? That That's part of it. Uh, and one thing that we see here is, is that, is that there's a lot of historical data that, or historical things that get erased or not seen. Like we wouldn't know that, you know, they put the white people in the graves and the black people, they left it out until you tell us, right? So that's one of the things that we try to focus here. But when we see that, when we see those things, how do you, Like, and we're going to talk about how do you join the uh, the MBA Black History Society. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But what do you think, as a, an advocate for racism, especially that lives in Atlantic Canada, how do you fight these things and how do you keep on fighting them? And, and, and how do you keep on doing that uh, to be heard? Because one thing is being heard, and that's one thing. But the other thing is for when people need to take action. How do you make the white man, which... That's another thing that I was going to emphasize is that a lot of people don't understand that it, it is a voice club. It is an old white voice club. It's it. Most of the power positions are men, especially white men, not even women, like not even women. So uh, that is something that that is very engraved in Atlantic Canada. So how do we how do you start those engagement with those things and keep on going and, and, and to for them to start acting? Um, well, how I've done what I've done in my advocacy is I've uh, just started with a letter campaign. Um, you know, I, I've advocated for individuals. I have a I, I just start with a letter campaign and I start if I can't get through, I start with media. If media will listen to me and um, I just don't back down. Like I had an experience with one of my cousins who is a teacher uh, in the Woodstock area terrible, terrible incidences of racism. Just, you would not believe, you would not believe. And I sat with him several times with his union rep and I was not invited back. They said, you cannot bring your cousin anymore because she's all about race. And my cousin says, so my cousin says, because it is about race and you're not recognizing it. So um, you just have to be the force and say that my history matters. I am equal. I, I am not backing down like with my cousin. I didn't. And we even met with Mr. Cardi, Minister Cardi. And where did that get us? So a lot of times you're kind of spinning in mud, right? They'll give you uh, a, vo uh, uh, a venue and, and, and hold counsel with you. But then the minute you're out of their sight, they're not going to deal with it. And that's exactly what's happened with my cousin and the many incidences of racism. But I believe we cannot give up. Uh, I think he might even have a heart attack after I, I worry so much about his health because he's being beat down by the system. And instead of educating and fixing the system, they are treating him as the problem and removing him from classrooms and putting him in other areas just backward. But it is the old boys club and it has to stop somehow. I, with every breath in me, I have to be able to um, somehow insert my 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 words and challenge them. Mm -hmm. um, that, is, that is very interesting that you, you put that point that, uh, like you said, the system puts him down. It's not him. It's just the system. And and one of the things that we we say is that the system is invisible. It's like a disease. You you can't see when somebody has cancer or somebody has AIDS or somebody has COVID. You we don't see that. Nobody can see that. Nobody can detect it. But it's there. It's the yeah. same thing as systemic racism. Like people Absolutely. don't see it, but it's there. And, yeah. it, and it's and it's something that, uh, you know, 
it's quite to make aware of people. And, and again, all your years of fighting to make people aware of that and I'm making these people, especially when you're in Fredericton, the Fredericton is the capital of New Brunswick. This is where all the politics move. Yeah. So these are the people that can make a change. Blind in, politics. Yes. Behind that, the doors. Yes. And mostly, uh, and they benefit, again, it, they mostly benefit people that don't look like us because right. because the system is made that way. So that that is a very good thing to emphasize. So tell us about like when you are in Toronto, what did you do there? What what did you work and what did you study there within uh, those time? Okay, when I was in Toronto from like um 77 to 91, I worked as a secretary and a medical secretary and that was not good for me, but I had, you know, I worked uh, in some of the leading hospitals with some of the leading physicians. Uh, I had one Jewish doctor who was very, very good to me, but I, I knew at the end of the day that I was burned and I couldn't do this job. So I started taking courses at York University because I knew that I had to do more because I wasn't satisfied. <laughs> so, um, and in the meantime, I had my son, he was born in 87. And then um, when he was getting sort of school, school age, um, he was probably three. I think he might have had his third birthday in, in, in Woodstock. We moved back to the East Coast and I had just finished my degree and, and started working. And luckily, I've always gotten very good jobs with I was the token one in the government, provincial or federal. And um, I was able to get employment and I knew that I needed more. And I was a single mom. I've been a single mom. I've raised my son 100 percent. Uh, I just got married last year in 2020. Congratulations. You married a woman 64. Don't try to change me because like uh, I've done it all on my own. <laughs> anyway, um, so, um, so yeah, so my son and I moved back and we were in Fredericton, we were in Woodstock for a bit. And then at my job, I was working for HRDC, the federal government, and I got a position in Fredericton. And so we moved down the highway. And even then I was bored and I knew I could do more and I couldn't stand like every, every one of my supervisors had blonde hair and blue eyes. And I thought, what kind of world am I living in? I got to get away from these people. So I just started educating myself and I did an adult education master's. And as I was finishing that, I discovered critical studies. And then I wrote a master's thesis, which has been published which is uh, called Releasing My Critical Chatter, an Autobiographical Narrative from the Black Diaspora. So my master's thesis is about me growing up in Canada and all the isms that happened to me, you know, like racism, sexism, eroticism, whatever happened to me as I managed and, and, and traveled through my life. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's it. I, I loved my time in Toronto and I always say Toronto's home, but, uh, I just wanted a kind of a quieter life. And in my mind, I thought I could give my son like a, a more stable education, et cetera. But, you know, I had no control over that. And it's like I gave him an African name because I didn't want him to be a Jamie or a Johnny or a Matthew. And but I gave him a name with the initials TJ. It's Tondaway, Jelani McCarthy. But he gets TJ. So you don't, you can't control anything. No, you, you definitely, you definitely cannot. So, I, I mean, and that's one of the things that, that I, I, I want to ask you about that. You work for the federal government. I did. And I'm part of the class action lawsuit. Oh, are you? I am. Oh my oh. God. Can I tell you what happened to me with the six years I was with the federal government. Oh, please do. Tell you. We well, just talked about that last week. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. One incident, you'll never believe this. When I was speaking with the uh, intake person, they said, oh, we want to record you. And I said, I would love to tell my story. So I worked for EI and I worked on the counter. And back in the day, there wasn't call centers. It was like the early 90s, right? So someone called and said, you know, I don't know if you remember, you gentlemen and ladies look young, but you used to do report cards. So if there were errors in the report cards, you'd say, okay, ask for Mary and I'll help you correct your card. So some this man came in one morning, Monday morning, nine o'clock, a big, tall, white man with an overhauls farmer, yuck, and he asked for me. Well, I was busy on the phone and I was helping other other clients and, and my coworker said, this man wants you, Mary. And I went, oh, okay. So I said, hi, can I help you? Um, you know, did we, did we discuss something on the phone? And he said, well, really, I'd like to speak to you privately. 
And I said, oh, sure. And we had break-off rooms for people who maybe were illiterate or whatever. They didn't want to talk on the counter about their life. So I took him into a break-off room. And this is what he says to me. Well, you know, it's kind of personal, but I feel I need to ask you. And I said, okay, what do you need to ask me? And he said, well, you know, I've never been with any other women but my wife. And I said, okay, what are you talking about? And he said, well, my my brother's been with a lot of women and and he loves black women. And I said, okay, you know, this is over with. And he said, well, basically what I need to ask is if you'll have sex with me. But before you answer, I've had cancer of the penis. So half my penis is gone. Oh my God. Okay, so I walked out. I said, you've got the wrong person. I walked out, talk about PTSD. I walked out. And I went to one of my coworkers and I said, you know, I had this horrible thing happen and he laughed, but we had cameras. So, um, and ironically that same day I was doing a test for another position and I flunked the test. And when I appealed it, they said, well, you should have told us you weren't well. I said, I was sexually assaulted here. <laughs> like, of course I wasn't feeling well. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I just at 11 o'clock, went into the examination room. Anyway, I had to call Ottawa and they said, absolutely, Miss McCarthy, you have every right to rewrite it and blah, 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 blah. And we want you to have some trauma. Like I had counseling and everything because it really freaked me out. But my coworkers, oh, Mary, like uh, your top's a little low. What are you trying to do? Invite the man back in. It was just constant. Like the managers didn't know how to handle it. And I was constantly re-injured and when I was back, I shouldn't have been on the front desk for probably another three months, but I was back on the front desk the next day. And anytime anyone came in the office with a, a baseball hat on and was kind of tall, I would have re-trauma. Is he back? Is he back? Yeah, oh, so wow. So one of the stories that I'm going to share with the Black Class Action Lawsuit for Federal Government Workers. Oh, my God. So, uh I mean, it, it, it's it's a bit baffling to go on this, but I mean, we have had people denounce the New Brunswick Provisional Government. We had somebody that we did a whole show about and, and some people behind the scenes uh, have contacted me personally saying that there is racism in the in the Absolutely. provincial government. Uh, some, yeah, some of them don't want to come out because they're, they're, they're currently working there at the moment. And it, it's not surprising to us. It's not surprising to us that there is... a racism because again we have deal with it uh for most of the times and we we know what how it feels like but in a federal government that this has happened to people like you and to many other people that are they're doing this class action lawsuit uh i mean how do people how did the superiors or or how is the system so oblivion in the federal government that this is the people that we pay taxes to, to for supposedly for us to you know, do Absolutely. things that we do. Uh, how is this system engraved and has been engraved for so long in the federal government when people like you have called this out and there is a lawsuit going there right now? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I was with the federal government six years and then my position transferred to the provincial government. So I, I did 24 years with the provincial government and extremely racist, extremely racist. The provincial government in Frederick in New Brunswick is extremely racist. I've even had to write, I see positions come up. They were looking for a systemic racism commissioner. I don't know where Arlene Dunn got this name, but she's Minister of Immigration and Indigenous Affairs. And I don't know what her other portfolio is. She shouldn't even get out of bed because she's got three portfolios and she can't do any of them well. Anyway, she put out a call for... Uh, people to apply for an administrator for systemic racism, like some type of a study person who's going to. Anyway, she called, she described everyone she, that was entitled. I had to write her. She said, for anyone who isn't new immigrant to Canada, uh, Asian, uh, uh, she said person of color, and then she said Indigenous. But she didn't mention a Black population. So she erased all of people of African descent. And I would not allow that. So I get on my keyboard and I email her and I said, your job op is incorrect. You're not being diverse. You've erased a whole section of people. 
And so her secretary says, oh, we're sorry. Her secretary, who is a black woman from St. John, she said, oh, we're sorry. I will rewrite it and um, I'll have the minister contact you. So like nine o'clock, two days later at night, I get an email. Oh, hi, uh, Mary Louise, uh, not Dr. McCarthy, which I really don't care about. I did my PhD because I had a story to tell. But don't call me Mary Louise because I'm not your friend. Uh, so anyway, she goes, oh, hi, Mary Louise. Um, we've done the new job off. I'm wondering if you could review it. First of all, I'm not your employee. You're not paying me. No, I'm not reviewing it. So I didn't even answer to that email. So the next day, the, the receptionist or the secretary emailed me and says, we have edited it, Mary. And here it is. Uh, if you'd like to have a look at it, it's posted live now. But like these people just don't even get it. And I, I will not stand. I mean, I'm going to be moving to uh, Florida to be with my husband and to just be Mrs. Barry Brandt and not Miss Mouthpiece. <laughs> but um, I will not stand and allow our culture to be erased because that's what's happening when the white superior colonial people do their talk and their walk. They will not give respect or, or uh, give the place and the respect and the dignity that our ancestors need. They helped build this province. I am a product of that. And I, and I became an advocate because white women were speaking for me and I couldn't handle it. I said, no, you don't walk my walk or my talk. I will speak for myself. So I'm probably off track. No, no, you're not. You're, you're, it, it, it is pretty, again, it, it's pretty engaging because I think one of the things that we want to, we want to learn from you. And, and that's one of the things that we we're, we do on this podcast. We want to listen to what people like you have to say and the experiences that people like you have to say uh, and also our audience learns as well, right? So that's one of the things, I think one of the ways, and this is a personal opinion, I think one of the ways that we try to combat this system is by people learning from people that lived it. And, you know, it, it has to become some type of education, but also a conversation, right? Uh, we could talk all we want and we could do one, but we have people like you that are that are fighting the good fight. You you are sending letters to politicians. You are you know talking to these people and trying to make this change. So it, it, you're not actually off track. We we're actually enjoying the fact that you're saying all all of that you're doing. I I you know I was interviewed Black History Month. Of course, I'm so desired. yeah. They get us too. We get that too. Yeah, we yeah. get it. We, we get it as well. Right. And so I was being interviewed by. Terry Sega at CBC, and he said to me, um, he was talking about the banners and the posters that they had flying downtown Fredericton, and they had 28 uh, posters of uh, significant Black people, and it's called Remembering the Roots of Black New Brunswick. And so he invited me in because I helped um, UMB Art Center do a little bit of research and everything. And so they were interviewing me, and <laughs> Terry Sega said, um, so Mary, like, does racism exist? And I had to bite my tongue because I wanted to say, so Terry, do you perspire? Like, you know, like, it's just so rampant. And I said, yes, Terry. I said, for instance, when I bought my house, I have a little bungalow on the north side of Fredericton. The neighbor, this old, ugly white man comes over and says, who's going to live in this house? Who's going to live in this house? And I looked at him, oh, my 411. And I said, myself and my son. Howdy, neighbor. He said, oh, okay, okay. Oh, you know, but I mean, how dare he? Like, whose business is it? You know, a moving truck is here and people are moving in. Anyway, I just, yeah. No, that's, I mean, that is something that we, I personally find amazing that you, you've been doing that for so long. And again, if you move to Florida, it's better weather. Definitely better weather than. Oh, here, that so. that's a matter of opinion. I mean, there's a lot of storms down there too. Yeah. I mean, Florida is great and nice, but beware of the hurricanes and stuff there. Well, I'm we a Caribbean guy. Blow so. away, you know, we, yeah. we want to keep you here. Don't blow away with the wind. Yeah, <laughs> if you're from the Caribbean, you're used to the hurricanes. That's 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 a given. But yeah. uh, but but I mean, you have children here uh, and uh, you know cousins and things like that. So how is it that how did you talk to your kids about racism or, you know, discrimination and things like that? Or have they experienced them themselves? Mm -hmm. I dealt it. I dealt with it directly. I nailed the nail in the middle of the board. Like uh, my son, when he was maybe five or six, 
his dad's Bermudian and he was in school and and they were wanting the kids to line up and they assigned him a girl and she wouldn't hold his hand because his hand was dirty. So he comes home and tells me this. And ironically, my mother happened to be there and my mother said, well, that's just life. And I went, no, mother, that is not life. And I will be going to the school and addressing this. So my son has seen me and has um, he knows he's got the same social justice um, vein. Like my husband said the other night, we FaceTime every night. And he said, honey, your eyes missed your son cries like you two are so connected. And and he he is uh, he's been groomed and and um, I mean, he's a spoken word poet and he writes and he's, you know, a wonderful, gentle soul, but uh, very much aware, uh, very much cognizant of the uh, in endemic systemic uh, subtleties of racism and calls it out like he just did a 10 day residency at Kuchnabakwak Park (laughs) and he said, mom. They did an Indigenous ceremony and welcomed everyone on the land, and they welcomed everyone but the Black population. He said they talked about the Irish and the Loyalists, and they talked about the Acadians, and they talked about the Indigenous, but they never mentioned our people. And I said, in that moment, they were erasing our history. And I said, how are you going to handle that? Like we were talking on the phone. And he wrote a bang-up piece of poem, like he just fed it right back to them. He is so gifted and phenomenal so um yeah he he, he, uh yeah so I dealt with that and with all of my and I really believe education is so important so all of my nieces and nephews from the time they were young enough to read I bought them books I for three or four years I subscribed them all to magazines whatever they wanted that's what they got from Auntie Mary because um you know they can they can systemically prejudge us by our looks but on paper if we show we have education we have a chance to half open the door and present ourselves I really believe um, and for me that's what has been my seed of growth is education I mean I was came at it late I didn't do my master's till my mid-40s you know and then I ended up doing two who the hell does two master's degrees I should have went on to a PhD but I'm glad I went to U of T. I wanted to be mentored by all the strong, you know, professors, George Day, Ronaldo Walcott. You know, I I had a wonderful year there um, and learned from all of Canada's finest critical race scholars. Um, but I, I believe that education is the key. And so, Hillary, when you're working with the education, it's so important to have education for the teachers yes the curriculum has to be modified but the teachers need to have training the administrators need diversity training I mean that was the big thing with my cousin and the union because I asked his union rep who was representing him for racism how when he had his most diversity training or has he had any anti-racism or anti-black racism training and he looks at me and he goes no I've never had and I just put my finger right in his face and said, shame on you. New Brunswick has this big immigration policy. Our classes are going to be more diverse. Our teachers are going to be no more diverse. How are you and your staff, without any diversity training, going to develop an inclusive society? You know, he's oh, he's a oink oink. He's a piece of work. I, 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 did, I do have a question. Um, yes. I mean, first off, thank you for coming on the show. Um, your personality is refreshing um, in more ways than one. You remind me of my aunt Annie, uh, who passed away many years ago. But but she, uh, I remember quick story. I was in, I was going to school, grade school. I was one of the few black kids in the school, and the gym teacher refused to let me get a drink of water. And I must have been about seven, six or seven years old. Came home, told my mom, and my aunt happened to be on the phone with my mom. And my aunt was like, "Say that again." And I'm like, "Yeah." Like my gym teacher wouldn't let me get a drink of water. Anyway, she shows up the next day, comes to school with me, marches into the principal's office and is like, you were going to let my nephew get a drink of water whenever the fuck he wants to get a drink of water. And if you ever fucking not let him get a drink of water again, there's going to be a problem. She was that lady. So mm-hmm. it's it's very nice to, to just see that in you, which is great. Um, and, and the stories that you tell about, you know, your experiences are, you know, they resonate with me 
on the American side, mm-hmm. um, you know, having a Scottish last name and showing up and then being like, oh, you're Alon. Like, yeah, that's me. Sorry. <laughs> I, hate, I hate to disappoint you, but, you know, this is me. Um, and that still happens to this day. Like, honestly, it's turned into a thing of where I kind of hope that happens because I kind of get off on the reaction now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's it, so it definitely resonates all those stories. But I, I think my my most pivotal question of the evening is what are your thoughts on the new trend now? Right. So now we have everyone trying to be inclusive and diverse and, and, you know, you know, institute diversity training and, 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 you know, inclusive training and, and different modules for their staff to do. Um, Are you like, I'm not okay with the whole trying nonsense, right? Like I'm very much an extremist, I guess we'll say in a lot of terms um, because Trying for me is the inevitable gray area that the system uses to always say, well, look, we're trying Yeah. for generation and generations. We'll keep trying. And when you call us on it, I'm still trying. Right. Don't hold me to anything. I'm still trying. So do you feel that the time like are, are we at an end of that when it comes to the black community? Like, do you feel that there is a difference now? Since George Floyd, since the, you know, the, the rise or the popularity or the notoriety of the Black Lives Movement, do you feel that we as a whole, on both sides of the border, internationally, are we at the end of that, of just accepting that crumb from the systemic white, you know, system of we're trying? Like, are we done with that? Or do you feel that we still have to have another tragedy in order for us to get fed up from taking the crumbs? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Because I I know for me, I am fed up with the trying and the crumbs. I want action. I don't want any more training. I don't want any more modules. I don't want to hear about your thinking about it. And it's a process and we need to do better. Like it's not hard to do better. It's an instant decision to do it. So what are your thoughts on that? Cause you've been around a lot longer and seen a lot more than me. So I would really love to get your perspective on, on that and, and tell me whether I'm right or wrong in, in, in that feeling. Uh, I think you're right. And I think that things are changing, but slowly. And I understand 100% what you're saying about trying because that's a mask, right? A lot of people can hide behind that. And, um, you know, I always believe that um, action speaks louder than words. Um, and, And in terms of the USA and the heinous crimes against uh, black men and, and, and police and, and enforcement officers, I, I, um, I don't know what to say. I think that George Floyd woke up a lot of people, certainly woke up our community uh, in terms of a connection and, uh, you know, and, and, um, you know, just, I can't breathe was just such a powerful, powerful movement. Um, I, I don't know what to say other than I have to believe, uh, Brent, but I know your name is something else, Alon. Brent <laughs> is my middle name. There's a whole story behind why it's a whole thing. Oh, why it's not there. Okay. Yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. <laughs> um, like, I have to believe that we have to stand together and say enough is enough is enough. Like, someone sent me a video the other day about three or four, I should send it to you, three or four communities in the U.S. that have been like... Um, uh, Black Wall Street and what happened with uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, there are several other communities that were completely wiped out and flooded. So all, whole cities and towns are underwater. And someone sent this to me because of my graveyard work. And um, like, I, I know it's one step and one breath at a time, but I do believe we have to move forward. And yes, it is so exhausting with the people who have all the power and what's so very sad is with the trump movement we have brothers and sisters that are following him which really um oppresses many of our brothers and sisters you know for the almighty buck you know so um i mean i don't know if it's any different with biden my immigration status is still stuck but still sitting there but, you know, the lawyer said, the lawyer secretary said she had to go do a deep dive through all my social media based on what Trump changed all the uh, immigration rules. And she goes, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I have to do a deep dive in all your social media. And I thought, 
well, that's great. Because if it was the other way around, my husband wouldn't have a lot of social media, but I do because like I have Instagram and I have Facebook. Anyway, she said, well, anyway, then she came back the next day and said, I just want to say, I'm happy to know you're, you're my favorite client because you do so much when it runs over like history. Anyway, but uh, I think we just have to, uh, Brent, we have to believe, and I hear you, the whining has to end, but I think we have to believe that together we can move forward. Small steps, you know, like, I mean, the craziness with, with that trial, even with George Floyd and 22 friggin' years, like a parole in 15, right? Like, what is that? Oh. He's still, he's still, you know, of a decent age to live his life. Parole yeah. in 15, you know, and he'll get the parole in 15, right? It's just, um, it's but just I also, heartbreaking. I also think that that's one of the things you emphasize. I think not only the belief, but the togetherness. I think what that's what George Floyd yeah. did. Like, we mm-hmm. all saw it. Uh, and, and, you know, that's one of the things that I am a person that is very tech savvy and in computers. And when you build something like what we're doing right now, like zoom or like windows or, or anything or a computer, it's just not one person. It takes a team, uh, Mm -hmm. to, to build that. It takes a team to, to race this. And, and that's thing, uh, the death of George Floyd was something tragic, but we all saw it. Mm-hmm. all of us whether you were white black asian arabic it doesn't really matter and and you for for that period of time there was a, a thing of solidarity just like what is happening right now with the graveyards in canada like we we're all seeing this this is not yeah. like this is not something and we're all saying like wait a minute uh this is not right but again all of us are, and I think that's one of the steps. If, if the togetherness and all of us start going in the same direction, or as most people, because like you said, that's another point that you said, uh, you know, you have people that are like Trump followers that are black people too, uh, and they decide to follow something that doesn't benefit them, but they'll do it for money or because just want to be contrarians. Uh, but if we get most people, which is what it, most people in the right direction, I think you're right. I think we believe that the system will have to change. Uh, so we don't want to take that much more of your time. So I want to see if we can talk about, about the MB Black History Society. Uh, so we know more about that and the work that you did there. Yeah, well, uh, as I said, I was a president for a few years and um, I joined that because I believed in the in the principle of collecting the data. And, and we originally back in 2010, 2011, wanted to write a book. And it's kind of segued into other things. But um, in St. John, they've opened up. Um, and that's another thing, um, like the, the deals with the provincial government, like they've been able to secure funding. Um, and they have now uh, in Brunswick Square, they have, um, I think it's called a Black Heritage Room. So they have like 2,000 square feet and a beautiful center. Um, they still have New Brunswick Black History. I mean, I think there's an office in the back of the of the uh, storefront. Um, they do educationals. They um, they have, uh, um, uh, of course, <laughs> Black History Month. They're very busy. Um, one thing they've been doing in St. John, which is very interesting, is that they've gone into the school systems and they do uh, school bus tours and they take the students out to visit Black communities and Black areas and do like a heritage uh, trip, uh, which I would like to do right straight across the province. I'd love to do that here in Fredericton. Um, so uh, my work with New Brunswick Black History, I stepped down a few years ago because I really needed to finish my, my PhD. And I just needed to look after Mary and and get that done. Um, and so that's what I've done. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful and a much needed organization. So um, that's a bit all I can say. Like I know that Mr. Thomas, Ralph Thomas is kind of the head of the, he's like the project manager. And, uh, and he also was involved with Prude, but I think he's retired from that. But um, I know they actually just got a stone for the first uh, Black Canadian lawyer, mm-hmm. Abraham Beverly Walker. They were able to get uh, uh, a stone. Uh, they did a campaign for making for like not GoFundMe, but just donations and the Law Society. They treated him horribly. Um, Abraham Beverly Walker. He was born like 1850 to maybe 
um, maybe 1905 or six. I, can't, I don't have his exact dates in my brain. And and I gave a talk about Abraham Beverly Walker about uh, in Black History Month for some organization. And they asked about his stone because in one of my slides, I say, this is where he lives. And uh, Peter Little, who wrote the book, they asked me, the people on the Zoom, oh, well, is there not a stone there? And is there a campaign? And I said, well, you have to ask Peter Little about that, who's the author. And he has since had the campaign and they raised like $10,000. So they bought the stone and now they have scholarships um, for, I think, law students, black law students uh, under like it'll be the Abraham Beverly Walker scholarship for potential black students in New Brunswick going to law, going to law school. Wow, that, that's great. And actually, we had Neil Clements, which is also a lawyer, yes. a black lawyer. Yes. And Neil is uh, the second lawyer in almost 100 years. Yeah. Second black lawyer in 100 years. And the, the other one was uh, Mr. A-B-W. Walker. ABW. Yeah. Yeah. So that that is kind of that is kind of crazy to say. So uh, I do want to thank you for being on the show with us. It's it, Again, I think we should have you again, obviously, because I think you have I mean, so much to say. I did but. have... I had another question. <laughs> Thank God. Oh, Hillary, please Hi. go ahead. I had the fortunate um, experience of uh, getting Mary Louise on the show and talking to her a bit for um, for CBC as well. Hopefully you guys will check that out too. Um, but I wanted to ask a question that hopefully doesn't ruffle any feathers of any of the members on the show, but we continue to have a bit of a debate about the Acadians <laughs> and their implication in not necessarily black history, but sort of in terms of allyship. And as a historian, I'm just wondering if there's any um, evidence that shows that there has been long ties that do solidify that they have been working together. If there's evidence that, you know, Acadians have sort of shunned other diversities because Alon and I both agree that they, as white people do get that benefit. They do get that card. They have that thing over us. What I have tried to say, just to fill you in, is that as a Black Acadian, I know that there are people like me and queer Acadians who are trying to encourage more change and do those baby steps. But as we just said, trying is not enough. You have to put your money where your mouth is and you have to do more. In, in the all of the um, history you have studied, I'm just wondering if you could shed light on either side. Is not enough being done? Has something been done that we are not aware of? And what you think would be good allyship in the future in terms of history? Yeah, like, um, well, Matthew DaCosta was one of the first, first Black men on, on Canadian soil, right? He was from France. Um, but I, I don't know, like, I think that I always praise the Indigenous community for mentoring my ancestors, because when they came up and obtained their freedom, whenever that happened, when they were no longer enslaved or indentured, they came originally from Africa and from the southern U.S. So who taught uh, our ancestors how to survive in Atlantic Canada? Mm-hmm. And I always give credence to uh, the Indigenous community. And I guess I should also to the Acadian community. I I know there's a big divide, French-English, within the province of New yes. Brunswick. And um, I I worked in for the federal and provincial government, and I had to have uh, un moment, s'il vous plaît. I had to have all these French phrases that were kind of drilled into me for mm-hmm. my voicemail. Um, but I I know that I had to rise up and speak for the black community because other voices were staking their history in New Brunswick. That being the Acadians, not so much the indigenous because we are on their land. I humbly Mm -hmm. and, and understand my ancestors were, uh, our ancestors were not settlers. They were brought here. I mean, I, I finished my dissertation. It was just under 250 pages and I was referring to black black Canadian settlers early African settlers and my supervisor had me take out that word settler and she said do not refer to yourself as a settler do you think your ancestors had a choice well some of them did a small percentage but once they were on the land they were survivors not settlers and and in fact even with their death 
you know, I'm very cognizant and mindful and, 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 and humble to the fact that it is uh, unceded and unsurrendered mm-hmm. land that our ancestors' bodies are on. As for the Acadians, I know there was much marriage too between the Acadians and the Indigenous, mm-hmm. and and I I um I guess I have to just step back and say I have to stand behind my own community and say that our voice matters. And yes, I mean the Acadian expulsion and all of those things happened, um, but also things happen to our community and our history is being erased and I cannot sit and allow that to happen while I have breath in my body. Oh, I agree with you. I think that the Acadian community has been better at saying that the Indigenous helped them in the past. They've not been great at helping the present Indigenous and they've not been great at having voices uh, be heard and have, you know, um, help stop Black uh, history erasure in our community. I definitely think that Acadians have a lot to do with, you know, getting better at that, which is where Alon and I agree. So thank you. Wow. Now that was a hell of a question though. Amazing. Yeah. Without <laughs> my rebuttal though, without me saying anything. So I'm, not I'm proud of you, there. but your face said everything. I know, <laughs> but I'm not going to go into that because we have a guest. So I'm going to save <laughs> my, my rants for another time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, so. my coworkers used to call me the, um, the road scholar because I was always on the road with my talks. And one time I was given a talk at a conference and I wrote a paper way back. Actually, I wrote it for, did I write it for Ronaldo's class? I know I wrote a paper about, um, it's called Black and Maliseet, my personal narrative. So I have like 6% Maliseet blood or whatever. But my grandmother's sister, my great aunt wrote in the diary, like family history, she was writing it out. And she said, do not go back any further. This is your history. Don't ask any more questions. Do not go back any further because we will not be talking about it. And she still has living children. So what she wanted to talk about was what she was refusing to talk about was that one of our grandparents was part Indigenous and part Chinese. And she didn't want to admit that there was Asian blood in our family, you know, so, so I was talking about that in a, in a conference and, and there was someone there who was an, an Acadian professor and, and she had asked me like, um, basically, do I know if, you know, my ancestors had married Acadians? Was there any French names? And I said, well, absolutely there were, because one of my grandfathers, his name was Diamond Diamond, D-I-A-M-O-N-D. And he changed the name, this is our oral history, to D-Y-M-O-N-D, because the white man was getting his mail. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is that. There was this place called the French Village, and apparently, just outside Fredericton, it was very close to Kingsclare, and apparently the Diamonds were getting the Diamonds mail. So, um, And that was my great-great-grandfather. And so now we have a whole line of family. My grandmother was a Diamond. And uh, we have a whole line of family and we all spell our name D-Y-M-O-N-D. So a little bit of Acadian history there. <laughs> that, oh, that, yeah, That is pretty cool. So Marie, if people want to find you or talk to you, where can they find you? Um, well, I wish I had a web page, but I don't. I, I have email. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, all under at Mary Louise McCarthy or, or Mary Louise McCarthy. Um, yeah. I'm happy to talk to anyone and, and uh, you guys have been great. I have one quick question. It's a very short answer. Um, you know, honestly, I don't think any of us knew about the you know annual gatherings taking place here in New Brunswick, like in, in your St. John Fredericton. So my question is like, how do we get on the guest list? <laughs> <laughs> is it like invite only? Do you have to marry? Oh, marry and everyone's welcome. It's like a celebration of our culture and our ancestors. My favorite one is Elm Hill because the whole community has been desecrated and it's there's hardly anyone living there. But one lady has a mini home on her ancestral property and we all come and park the cars and people bring food and guitars and it's a whole party. You know, some people pass around the bottle if you want. Okay. It's, it's lovely. Mary, are you gonna t- are you gonna tell us when the next one is? Yeah. You're gonna drop yeah. a line, maybe yeah. when it's well, co- okay. We, we skipped for 2020 because of yeah. pandemic. Cool. But 
Yeah. All right. Thank so you. you. Thank you so much. Especially St. John, too. I want to check that out this year. Wow. It's yeah. been so great having you on the show. Thank well, you definitely you. want to check that. So, uh, Mary, thanks. Thank you very much for being part of this. This We, we learned a lot from you. And oh. hopefully we, we can learn more. So. Thank you. I'll come back anytime. Well, Even Florida. I taught classes from Florida last winter or yeah, 2020 and 2019. So <laughs> in the winter, we might visit you there. If it's too cold, we'll we might, we might, we might do the phone from Florida. Palm, so. We're on the Atlantic, Palm Coast, but it's a great <laughs> place. We're very close to uh, Daytona Beach. Oh, there mm. you go. So that, that, that's that. Uh, you guys have anything else to say? Just no, thank, thank you for you. coming on. Yeah, this was great. I'm so glad I got to talk to you twice. I feel spoiled. <laughs> anytime, Hillary, anytime. I'm very honored to be here. And my husband will be so thrilled. So let me know when I can send it to him. He's oh, I, I will make sure to send everything to you. Don't worry. Uh, guys, uh, don't forget to donate on Patreon. Uh, please go to uh, blackinthemaritimes.com if you want to donate to Patreon or PayPal. Uh, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook at Black in the Maritimes. We just reached a thousand people on TikTok. Hillary, that's amazing. Uh, thank, thank you. you. Uh, and again, uh, guys, subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. All right, guys. Peace. Bye.